my heart started to beat in a different way because it was me and my mum and we were in Barbados and it was just us. We weren't in Essex anymore. Mm. <laughs> Life was different. <laughs> right. And that love of the Caribbean and Barbados and that relationship that you develop with your mother, really important time, those nine years. So it's a pivotal moment for me. I am Chantelle Miller, and this is the Island Girls Rock Podcast, a series of conversations featuring women of the Caribbean and its diaspora. Equal parts fun, informative, thought-provoking, inspiring, and always engaging. Welcome to our tribe. On this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Samantha Williams, the founder of Book Love. And Book Love is essentially an initiative which focuses on promoting and selling books which show a wide array of people from different cultures. So really, to break it down, people of color from various areas in the world because not everyone looks the same. And the reason why Samantha decided to do this is because of her daughters. Her daughters came home from school and decided that they were not seeing themselves anywhere in the books that they were reading at school. So Samantha founded Book Love. It's a great conversation which kind of, we go off on a tangent, we speak about politics, representation in film, as well as books, and of course, her beloved Barbados. Hey Sam, thank you so much for coming through to the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk about what we're going to talk about, you Ah, and book love. Mm -hmm. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So before we kind of launch into our conversation, and I'm really going to try my best to not act like I know anything about you, right? Because, you know, people you don't. don't. Know <laughs> Actually, it's been a while. Me. This is true. But I know I when I first met you, you were very much into your producer mode, creating really compelling stories about the Caribbean, um, especially your homeland, which is? Barbados. Boop, boop, boop. Mm-hmm. All right. And also, I know that you were very passionate about that at the time. So tell me a bit about how you got into film producing and working for TV and so forth. Um, well, my journey started in television about 20 years ago, which God, makes me sound really old. <laughs> but yeah, I've been doing it for about 20 years. And I started off really with a an interest in telling stories and finding people whose stories hadn't been told before. So that was really what drove me. I've always been naturally inquisitive and also felt that I wanted people to know where I was from because I felt that a lot of the British output that I saw that was being made um, and also what was being viewed was very kind of monocultural. It was always stories and characters that were kind of traditionally English in Mm -hmm. representation. And I just felt that there wasn't enough Caribbean content getting out there or, you know, stories from... Caribbean communities or African communities um, within the UK, those stories weren't being told. So it was always a passion of mine to find those stories and and kind of give people from our community a platform on which to to really get some exposure and, and tell our stories because we have a lot of stories to tell. But, you know... They yeah. don't always get out there, especially in a kind of sort of mainstream mm. sense. Like, you know, people, commissioners perhaps don't think they're commissionable subjects. Okay. They'll think they're a bit niche 
they might come on at four in the morning or they might be on a channel that no one's ever heard of, but they weren't right. getting your like prime time slots. So that was and prime time would be, you know, nine o'clock. Right. Channel four, or BBC. Of course. So that's something that I really spent a lot of time trying to do. Yeah. Indeed. So you say where you're from mm-hmm. and that kind of jumped out at me because you spent most of your time here. Or was it more balanced? And why would you say you're from Barbados? And what does that mean to you? Wow, I wasn't even conscious of <laughs> you articulating it like yeah. that. I, I went to school in Barbados from the age of 9 to 18. And Barbados to me is home. I was born here, lived here till I was 9. And I came back here when I was 18. But those nine years when I lived in Barbados, it was, it was just me and my mum. Right. And they were really special. Um, because I was an English, Bajan, half Welsh, half Bajan mix-up girl, right. going to Barbados when she was nine and being transported to a place that was very different from like suburban Essex <laughs> that I had spent my nine years in prior <laughs> with my mum and dad. So I had to redefine in a way who I kind of was, but not consciously. I started to I guess develop a different pace a different rhythm my heart started to beat in a different way because it was me and my mom and we were in Barbados and it was just us we weren't in Essex anymore <laughs> life was different <laughs> right and that love of the Caribbean and Barbados and that relationship that you develop with your mother fortunately I had a great one from the age of 9 to 18 and also my relationship with myself and my identity in Barbados was really important time those nine years that was a pivotal moment for me and my mum since passed away so like saying I'm from Barbados is just the only way I could ever imagine describing where I'm from because of that really personal interconnection with her and with Barbados like to say I'm not from there would be a complete disservice to her and to myself Okay. I feel it so strongly. I know I, you do. It, it's amazing. I, <laughs> I know. I, yeah. Really proud. That's quite beautiful, Sam. I think you've articulated how people who share your experience of being born here, but then being transported to the Caribbean, you know, that's generally how we feel. And then to come back as almost adults, because you're not grown at 18. You think you are. But yes. I think now that my mom has mm. passed that, In hindsight, Mm. it was the most beautiful gift she ever gave to me because I think growing up mixed race in the UK, in London, Essex, whatever, you know, a lot of people can say, oh, you know, you don't know where you're from or you're half this, you're half that, you're lost. I had an experience in school when I was nine when I wanted to be an angel in the nativity play. I went to a private convent in Essex and Mm -hmm. the nun said to me, you can't because you're not blonde and you're not blue eyed. Oh, dear. And, and this actually happened. And this happened. Right. And from that moment, I think, was a catalyst. My mum was like, we're That's going it. home. <laughs> Amongst other things that right. was going on in her personal life. Okay. But, you know, I think at that point, she I mean, my mum was very aspirational. So mm. she worked hard. She was a nurse. You know, she sent me to private school because she believed that would give me, in her idea, in her mind, yeah. a better start. You know, that's a whole other debate about private schools <laughs> and whether or not it is a better start. But that's what she believed. Yeah. And at that point, she just took me back to Barbados. And, you know, the reason I get emotional about that is because, which is what the point I started making about if you're mixed, I find that sometimes 
And maybe not if you're mixed, maybe if you're just from, if you're born in the diaspora Mm -hmm. and you perhaps don't have that really close physical connection Connection. with a place. I don't know if it's an element of disconnect or feeling a bit lost or what have you. A feeling of otherness. Feeling and otherness, feelings of otherness Mm. and, you know, I can only talk about other Caribbean or, you know, mixed dual heritage people that live here that haven't been to the Caribbean or have only experienced it on like a two week carnival here and there. Mm. Their relationship with, 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 with the Caribbean is so different from mine. And mm. I, I take my hat off to my mum for, for giving me that. And it was a really bold move and very brave of her yeah. to do that to pick up and go back after many years of being in, in England to just pick up with just me and her. Single mum, going back in the in, in in the eighties yeah. with not a lot of money, and that wasn't really the tra- yeah. the traditional journey. Usually, our parents would stay here until for much longer, for much longer, much longer. retirement, and age. go back. Yes, in their like retirement yes. age period with a lot of money, or yeah. have sold their house and set up. So people saw her coming back with this single. Red skin girl, <laughs> and they want to know where. Oh you know, gosh, that accent! Yeah, so it's it's just very yeah. layered, very complex. It's mm. it's you know, but that's that's culture, isn't it? Nothing yeah. ever straightforward. Yeah, so. Yeah, so hats off to my mum. Absolutely, we share that a very similar experience as mm. my mum. You know, left here when I was well, she took me to mm. Nevis when mm. I was eleven, and so eleven to twenty-two, I think mm. that was my time in the Caribbean. I'm, like you, eternally grateful for that move. Bold move, as you said. Very bold. So for me, Sam, this really kind of gives us the background on your strong passion for that ele- that particular element of storytelling and, you know, your trajectory into mm-hmm. producing and trying to ensure that we, we're represented. But, you know, flash forward a few years and here we are, Miss Creative Entrepreneur and founder of... Book love. So tell me, I guess what I really want to know is a few things. Why did you decide to kind of move away from producing and telling stories in that format? Because what you're doing now is you're still telling stories, but um, in a literary way. So tell me why you move from producing and film to to literature. It's totally organic. There's no okay. like, I never made the decision to start selling children's <laughs> right. books, um, multicultural children's books, especially. Mm-hmm. I worked in television for a long time and I just got tired. Okay, what I were you tired like of? I felt like I was screaming in a room that was soundproofed and everyone that I wanted to scream to was outside the door okay. and they weren't hearing, but they could see And I just got tired of banging on the same doors, banging on the same drum, making the same noises and not being listened to. And that was very much my experience in television. I just felt like no one really cared anymore. Okay, You know, there is a lot of um, talk about, you know, representation and diversity and there's loads of initiatives. And people would disagree with me and say, Sam, you're too cynical or whatever. But But this is your experience. I worked in the business Mm. for a long time. And anyway, I moved on and I had a family and I had three young children. And I think my patience for it weaned somewhat and I started to just see things for what they are. I think children have a way of doing that. They make you less tolerant of the nonsense. And I also felt that I wanted to spend more time with my children and the amount of energy I was spending in television trying to do the right thing. 
was just taking me away from my home, you mm. know, from time at home with my children. And I could see what my children needed. Um, Sorry, Sam, what do you think they needed? Well, I think they needed to have, well, in terms of your question specifically, I wanted the representation at home okay. of my my culture, my, my history, Barbados, the wider diaspora, Africa. I wanted my children to grow up with those influences. And I was very aware that my mum wasn't present in my life. Okay. Physically, in spirit, she is. And my children know her well. Um, again, in spirit, we have photos of her all over. But what I really wanted them to have exposure to were books and visuals and audio material where they could just see and feel Africa, see and feel the Caribbean, the food, the culture, the music, the stories. So I started to hunt for these things. Right. And it was really difficult to find books, children's books that mm. were relevant to, to, to our household and to my lifestyle and, you know, books that were representative of my friends, of my community, of my history. Right. I've always had, I've always had this passion for representation and, and social justice, which is why I guess I did what I did in television, trying to, you know, change the narrative, change the script. Mm -hmm. But I've always had a love of children's books as well, even before having children. Anything but anything that portrayed people of colour in a positive light. Of course. I always went for it, even children's books before I had children. So I did it in television, did it in children's books, and then spending time as a mum with my children and seeing what they needed, especially when they entered the primary school system. I could see the same problems I was encountering in television were there in education as well. I mean, I've since, I guess I, we all know they're in every sector, but I think in different stages of your life, you are confronted with it in different ways, of depending course. on what sector you move into. Right. I didn't have children. I wasn't in education, but <laughs> now I am. I can now see you know. the kinds of books they're bringing home. Or if I walk into a traditional mm. high street bookshop, I wasn't going to find a book that I necessarily wanted to my children okay. to identify with. What were you so, finding, Sam? What were the well, images? Well, Tell us it's a bit just that. Okay, there's there's two types of customers that I have. Right. You have your your customer who is looking for a book that is going to be relevant to their ethnicity, or they want something that is going to be um, contain subject that they a subject they can identify with. So, and they, they will hunt for that book because they're very proud of their heritage, their right. culture, and they want that book to be reflected in what they read, that those subjects to be reflected in what they're reading to their children. And then you have another type of customer who's not really interested in all of that, but just wants representation. So they want a person of colour, but their ethnicity does not have to be integral to the story. Okay. So then you have another customer who... <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, who is just unaware of the uh -huh. fact that they even want a person of colour in their story. But when you show it to them, they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Bingo. Right. Right. So essentially, when you go into a traditional high street bookshop, if you're looking for any of those three things, it's very rare that you find it. So you have to find your books elsewhere because bookshops typically are selling books that are being published by mainstream publishers. Which means? Which means that they are going to be publishing books that they think are going to sell right. or that they are going to be more conventional in image. And that comes down... And conventional then meaning? Well, meaning white, blonde, right? blue-eyed princesses, okay. which is... Not everyone's story. Which is not everyone's story, mm -hmm. but it's how... 
the publishers see this as um, it's not niche. It's marketable. Right. It's sellable. If they put a blonde princessy type blue eyed character right. on the front of a children's book, it's going to sell. Okay. And it will. Yeah. Well. And if you put a black girl or boy with an afro or dreads or a little child with a turban or a, they'll think it won't sell. So already they've they've kind of put this um, boundaries. Yeah, they've put their own narrative they've put on the, the stories. Yes. And there's lots of reasons why yeah. they do that. Mm. Um, again, it comes down to money mm-hmm. and things like that always often come down to money. So from a finan- they've got a financial reason. But then there's also the moral and ethical reason, which is we should be casting far and wide. We should have, which is another problem I involved, um, I encountered in television as well with representation, you know, always going for the safe character, if okay. you like, you know, someone who the decision maker or the producers think will just appeal to the viewer. To the, yeah, to yeah. the widest market. So, to the wider yeah. market, which yeah. again, so, it, so the same problems mm. now that I'm that I've encountered in TV for years, I'm now encountering. Here we go again. Yeah, but it's not a surprise. I mean, this is why I started Book Love. Okay. I started Book Love because I thought, you know what? I'm not asking for much. (laughs) I'm asking for books that represent my friends and family. Right. And if I feel like this, I know that other friends and family feel like that and other people from other ethnic majority groups feel like that. So... It's not that radical. Okay. Well, I'm, you didn't think. You didn't think it was that radical. I, I don't think it's that radical. You still don't. But because your customers may say differently. My customers are freaking out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically. Exactly. But it's such, it's so sad that it's such a novelty. Right. What I do now is I source books from all over the world that portray children and families of colour. And by of colour, I mean, that's another one of these... <laughs> descriptions that again is up for debate you know collectively people who are from different ethnic groups different racial groups so my focus has always been Caribbean and African because that's my heritage that's my first love I think whenever you start a hobby or a passion or a business you always start with what your what's in your what's what's in your heart absolutely that's your trigger that's Mm -hmm. your driver And then as a result of doing this, I've had other women, parents come up to me, dads in turbans, mums wearing hijabs, saying, can you get me stuff? And it's just like, wow, you know, so now I do multi, so now I I do multicultural children. Because, you know, in the Caribbean, we have, (laughs) we're we're a melting pot in the Caribbean. We have Mm. women in hijabs, we have men wearing turbans, we have guys with dreadlocks. We have it all. Okay. So, but so, where are you sourcing these books, Dan? Because you've had to look. You've had to look outside of the UK. Oh yeah, obviously. publishing companies. The joys of social media have <laughs> yeah. made my job quite easy. Okay. Instagram has completely revolutionised how I do things, and I think it's a big, bit of a shout out to <laughs> Sonia Meggie if you ever get to hear this. She okay. made me sit down one day and said, "Sam, you need to do Instagram. Get your Instagram account." And started. the day she did that was the day everything changed. I mean, I've got authors coming to me, publish, wow. um, publishers, self-publishers, illustrators, liking my photos. Okay. This thing has gone viral. The power of the grand man. You've moved on from producing. Mm-hmm. You're pursuing this other passion. You know, you're getting books in from all over the world. You know, for me, I guess it's like, well, where are you selling these books? 
you know, what were you doing? Were you going to to markets? Were you just sending the word out that, you know, I've got this box, bag, whatever of books come through, come by from my home? What were you doing? Well, again, totally organic. It all started with me approaching my children's school last year for Black History Month. Right. I said to the head teacher, what are we doing for Black History Month? He said, nothing. And then I said, well, how about we do this? And I put an idea to him that we put a book fair on and he loved it. And I got in touch with some authors and said, look, because I wanted black books there, whatever that <laughs> means. Course. But, you know, yeah. books written by black authors mm-hmm. representing positively black people during Black History Month. And a couple of authors I found, they couldn't make it. So they said, look, we can't make it, but just take the books right, and sell them for us. And because I'm not a business person, I was like, sure, no problem. <laughs> I didn't talk about markup or margins. I was like, I'll do it for you, no problem. And I took those books into this book fair and it was like I had put I don't even know what on the table. Like, I don't want to make an illegal no, uh, let's, thing. Yeah, but you know yeah, what I mean? Roti. It was like roti. I had put roti down yeah. and rum <laughs> and sweets and you name it. Everything. I mean, okay. the parents were just going crazy and mm. I just felt like I'd come home. I was like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. Brilliant. And from that moment on, I went back to those authors and I said, can I get some more books? But how much will you sell them to me for this time? <laughs> you know, so immediately my business hat went on I thought they want books I can get them I'm providing a service I'm giving you stuff that you need that your children need that we need as a community I want to do this and I want to make this work so my love of children's books at that point then turned into something something else another venture another venture Mm. and it was purely organic purely by accident I went back to the authors I said look I really love these books. Can I do this again? Can you sell them to me? And I thought, let me see if I can make make this into a business. And, voila. and that's how it started. And okay. then the word spread in my neighborhood right. that this is what I was doing. And then people started coming to my house and buying books from me. And then I started doing Christmas fairs at schools, summer fairs, and then it just took off from that. So now I go into schools. I don't need a summer fair. I go mm-hmm. into schools and I work with teachers. I help them source books, mm-hmm. diverse books for their libraries. I do farmers markets, I do museum events, anywhere. I've got a pop-up in Brixton. I do Brixton Market next to the fruit and veg store. I'm selling (laughs) multicultural books. I love it. Anywhere I can pop up, I'll pop up. I love it, Sam. It's been, I've seen your growth and it's been very intense and quite organic. And, you know, just from my viewpoint, what you're doing is so necessary. It's necessary, it's beautiful, it's right on time. And that's, the lovely side of it. But, you know, it's a business. How has that been for you as a creative entrepreneur, having your own business? How has, how do you see yourself growing? Where do you see yourself going? Like I said, when I approached the head and I took the books from the authors, it did not even occur to me that I could make money from this. Okay. I'm not a business person. Okay. I hate it. You hate it. I hate business. What do you hate about it? I'm not a capitalist. Right. Okay. I'm a socialist, soft socialist. Right. I don't know what that even means, but I'm not a capitalist. Mm. I'm I'm quite charitable by nature, so I often want to give books away. Okay. I struggle with people giving me money for books. I know it's weird. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, you know, it's because I'm running okay. a business. I right. have to... I have to change that. I need to get therapy. So what have you been doing? I can't run a business and give stuff that? away. 
I'm struggling. That is the truth. So where are you right now? Where are you? Okay. So you <laughs> know that you have to make money. I know that. Look, my I spent a I spent about nine months mm-hmm. doing intense, clumsy, chaotic, disorganized market research. Right. That's what I call it in hindsight. Okay. And that basically just meant I was saying yes to every invitation, <laughs> going to every book fair, every market, everything I could possibly okay. squeeze into, even if I didn't make any money, I was there doing it. So I think on the one hand, I, I I don't like business, but I think I am a business person. Okay, so, so how I think are there's you right. So there's two, two sides. There's right. a bit. I am. I think I'm naturally entrepreneurial. Okay, because I'm really creative mm-hmm. and I'm smart. Like I know how to turn something into into money. Okay, right? I know how to do that. Right, but I don't like to do it. Okay, so I have the idea. That's a I know I have the right. idea and I have the know how and I can see something working. But it's the number crunching. It's the maths. It's having to then sit down and put all that creative stuff away and look at the figures, look at the numbers, look at the margins. I hate that. I go on instinct. I go on gut and I go on feeling. I go on soul. And some people will say, well, that's not business. But for me... I've been, a doing, way I've been doing business. this for a year mm. and I'm making money. Mm-hmm. Now, I might not be able to tell you how many books I sold in the last <laughs> six months. I okay. can't even tell you, you know, hard and fast figures and, right. and, 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 and turnover. So if I went on to Dragon's Den, it'd eat me alive. But they might like right. me. But exactly. <laughs> they might like, they, they, might might like the they might like the concept. There you go. So that's what I have to reconcile. Okay. So so I'm at a point now where I'm taking someone on to do yes. that. Yes. Because you can't be who you're not. You can try to learn it, but it's not where I'm most productive or okay. happy. And that's okay. It's okay to admit that. The best part of being a creative entrepreneur is recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so this is where I actually need help. This is where I'm out of my remit and I now have the ability or the resources to be able to bring someone in to take that part and own it. You know, when I have parents and carers and grandparents, customers coming up to my store with their children Mm -hmm. and their eyes light up when they see my stock, like there is nothing like it. I, tell, I had a woman who bought, because I do dolls as well, I do black dolls. Right. And um, the woman, she bought a doll for me. She was in her 50s. She said, this is the first black doll I've ever had. Wow. What, wait, hold up, Sam. Sorry. You said the woman was in she her 50s. She was in her 50s. But Chantelle, don't, you take, you might <sighs> think that's unusual. Okay. I think it it's is, sad. It is. It, it's, it actually it's, it it's makes more me sad. than sad. It it's, makes me it's sad. It's tragic. It's tragic. Mm. But if you walk into any, if you walk into any supermarket right now, okay, a big, what they will call a hyper supermarket, yeah. where you can buy anything Everything. from batteries to <laughs> bread to bath mats, shelves full of dolls. Not one black one. How do they look? Yeah. Not one black doll. So mm. this is 2018. You cannot walk into a regular <sighs> shop and buy a black doll. My children will sit at home and watch various TV channels, family, you know, mm-hmm. children's channels. And they will look at TV now and be like, why are there no black What's dolls? What's going on? All yeah. the, they'll have a range of dolls. Every character on every advert is a blonde, brunette, pale skin. That's not an accident. You know, this is when I start, this is when I realise that, not realise, but I'm political as well. Yes. So I'm not a capitalist, but I am political. So if I have to make noise, I make noise. Mm-hmm. And I put panels together and I yes, I do. make publishers sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable because they know 
they know that black people read books. We all know that black people spend money, okay? Right. There's been lots of research and data mm-hmm. that shows that we have a hum- millions and millions. Yes, we do. More, more spending power, ma- millions and millions, mm-hmm. billions. The publishers know this. So if they know they can make money by putting black, Asian, Chinese children in their books, not just one, but en masse, why aren't they doing it? If they can make money mm-hmm. from doing it mm-hmm. and they're still not doing it. So why do you think that's happening? Sam? Well, or not happening? <clears throat> Prejudice, right. discrimination. I, I call it racism. I would love to actually ask one of the whoever's commissioning children's right. books. Well, you know what? Why aren't you? It could happen. Why aren't you commissioning more books mm. with black children in them? Let's just tell me straight. Mm-hmm. What are your reasons? Because don't tell me that no one's buying them. Mm-hmm. In Croydon, Waterstones, walked past there last week, looked in their shop window. One of the most multicultural boroughs in London, well, in England. Right. How do they get away with having a window front with not one person melanated in any shape or fashion? Did you go in, Sam? No, I didn't go in. Well, maybe maybe that's not your battle. Maybe you focus on book love Do you know and what? make it and make it the equivalent and better of Waterstones. You grow your brand. Yeah. Maybe that's the strategy that you should yeah, have. Yeah, and I, I struggle with that too mm. because I do think that that's when things can become ghettoized really? and marginalized so? because I think that, I think on the one hand, it's really empowering mm-hmm. when a community that is disenfranchised or not being catered to or being overlooked goes off and sets up their own industries. I think that's really powerful and of really course. strong and I really encourage that. Mm. But then on the set at the on the same token, I asked, well, what are we saying to these big publishing companies? You know what? We're, we're going to let you off the hook. Mm. We don't, you don't need to cater to us, actually. Mm. You can just cater to whoever you want to cater to, and that's okay. okay. No, I, I think they have a responsibility. You've been very real about your experiences as, you know, a dual heritage woman. And also as a creative entrepreneur, you know, the stars and hearts and passion, but also the very grounding business aspects that, you know, are not to be stereotypical or or even generalize. But as a creative, that's not necessarily known to be our strongest um, suits, I guess, in regards to entrepreneurship. So I think there are people who are listening who will benefit from knowing that they're not alone in feeling that way, that I love what I'm doing, but, you know, the accounting and all of that stuff, it just kills the vibe, as you said, the vibe killer. I met a woman last week at an event that I went to and she said, you know what, which made me reassess again, she said, don't be scared of making money. It's okay to make money. You can make money and still have a soul. Yes. And I just think that was really powerful. And mm-hmm. she said, you know, if you don't make money, you're going to have to stop doing what you're doing. So I have to reassess that whole idea of not being a capitalist. If you could send a message to anyone out there who is really pondering the on the edge in terms of the importance of their representation as a storyteller in general, one one thing I know is that everyone has a story. It's such a beautiful thing. Everyone has a story. Some people don't even realise that they have one. 
And I think we live in such a fast-paced world now where people think a story has to have a beginning, middle and an end and it has to have a conclusion and it has to have a crescendo and it has to have a this and it really doesn't. Your story can be how you feel from the moment you wake up. A story is anything, you know. It's anything and everything. It, there's no script. It is really how you feel and how you get to where you are and where you started. Yeah, like everyone has one and customers have them and they always tell me them. And that's one thing I love about the job. People love to talk to me about their story. So, yeah, just be, be real. Tell your story. Thank you so much for coming through, Sam. But before you leave, tell us where we can find you. You can find me on Instagram, which is this is book love underscore and Twitter. This is book love. And we appreciate you, Sam. Trust me, you are needed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming through today. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Island Girls Rock podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe, give us a rating, a comment, and tell all your friends about us. Catch every episode of the Island Girls Rock podcast by subscribing on Acast, Apple, and all good podcast apps. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram using IGR underscore love or with hashtag Island Girls Rock Pod. You can also visit islandgirlsrock.com to find out more about what we do. This podcast was produced by Unedited. See you again next month.